Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Stenhouse Publishers amplifies educators' voices through professional books written by teachers for teachers. Check out one of our hot-off-the-press books like the best-selling Beyond February by Donovan James. This practical guide invites elementary educators to teach black history in truthful and meaningful ways that help young students understand the past, the present, and the world around them. With sample lessons, book collections, and an FAQ section, James gives you the tools to move beyond February and teach black history all year long. Use code STEN24 for 20% off the Routledge website through April 26th. Welcome back to our classroom. Today, I am joined by Whitney A. Martinez, founder and CEO of Absolute Impact Consulting, social impact advisory firm that helps nonprofits maximize their impact through expert consultation and professional development opportunities led by industry experts. Whitney thrives at the intersection of education, philanthropy, and leadership. Welcome, Whitney. Roberto, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And I'm excited to learn more about you, learn more about the work that you do. Why don't we just go ahead and start by you sharing a little bit more about yourself and your role within the education nonprofit sector? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the education and nonprofit sector literally all of my life. I started out as a teacher. I am a certified principal for the state of Florida, but since then moved to Charlotte, North Carolina and kind of pivoted my career path a little bit to go back into the nonprofit space. And so I have been, you know, in the sector advocating for education, arts and culture for over 15 years now. And my life's work is really built around that. And the passion for that, Roberto, really comes from my upbringing. I have very humble upbringing. I was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, moved to the United States when I was the age of five. So English is actually my third language. I've been telling people my second language, but then I realized, no, you spoke French, then you spoke Creole, and then you learned English. And of course, I tried to learn all the French back, right, years later. And so I've been in this space, you know, advocating for students. Um, because for me, you know, if we are always talking about the next generation and really focusing on the upbringing of the next generation and really solidifying what education looks like in the different spaces and places where we where our students are. And so how can we do that effectively and how can we take action behind it rather than just sit around and just talk about it, right? There are so many edu education issues within this space and we can't focus on everything at the same time is what I've learned, right? We have to take very strategic steps in order to meet our students where they are. And my work has really centered around that within the space. Well, let's talk about those strategic steps. I'd love to hear more about 
how education nonprofits can maximize their impact. I think there are a lot of people and organizations that want to do good work. And I'm in yeah. touch with folks in the community, not just here in Tampa, Florida, where I'm at, but all across the country. Sure. And I noticed that there's a lot of people that they have the intentions to do the work. And sometimes they don't know how to make it happen. They don't know how to get the funds. They don't know how to maximize the potential of their organizations or the potential of partnerships or the potential of the dollars that exist out there that are not being tapped. So yeah. maybe you can help us with that. Yeah. Yeah. And you hit so many nails on the head with, with that intro to the question. And it's a great question, but it's also so multi-layered. I mean, I could probably sure. spend the next eight hours talking about this, but one of the things that you mentioned, of course, dollars are always an issue when it comes to not just education nonprofits, but any nonprofit, right? There's always a need to maximize your financial resources. You get more money, you can do, you can have more impact, or you can grow your programs, you can grow your staff, you're able to build that capacity that you need to really maximize your impact. And so when it comes to the financial piece, what I tell nonprofits, I, I usually focus on two areas. The first is don't buy it off more than you can chew. You know, you I've I've worked with nonprofits who have had limited resources, and I'll throw up 500K. They have five hundred thousand dollars a staff of eight who are underpaid and programs that expand beyond the local community. And when we think about those factors, we know that pay equity is an issue within the nonprofit space, right? But we also know, and many people are not going to want to hear this, there are many nonprofit leaders who are just not equipped to be running the business of a nonprofit, and I say that for so many different reasons and so many different things that I've seen during my time in this space. One, there's just a lack of knowledge about how to run a nonprofit like a business because it is a business, right? Sometimes we forget it and we begin to run it like an after school club, right. not realizing that that 501c3 status, that is just your tax status. It is still a business and should be ran as such. Uh -oh. So not having, right. And so not having those prerequisites in order to run the nonprofit appropriately to, in order to maximize the impact, because you are the leader of the organization, will have a detrimental ripple effect on the organization. Now, back to the equitable piece, because this is a piece that I'm also passionate about. When board of directors bring on nonprofit leaders, and expect them, particularly BIPOC and Black cultural leaders, and expect them to work magic for these education nonprofits, to change the numbers around, increase the impact within a year, increase the budget. Now we have a bigger problem, especially when those Black leaders and leaders of color are not being supported with their own professional development to get to where they need to get to, to be upskilled, right? To learn and, and amass that knowledge that they need to run the organization. And so, you know, working towards that glass ceiling, there's a new term for that glass ceiling now, like it's not even a ceiling anymore. There's nothing there. You know, we're trying to reach these heights that are just invisible as leaders of color. And I think that's where it starts, right? Being able to build that capacity for your nonprofit, recognizing that the need to bring in leaders that either have the skills to run it like a business, and if they don't, then provide them with the resources that they need to get there so that you are truly running your nonprofit in an equitable way. And the other piece, you know, we talked about um, 
you know, that programmatic element, right? When nonprofits don't have enough resources, it's so important to focus what you do have and maximize the impact of what you do have and really focus on the quality of the work that you're doing versus the quantity. You don't need to be in Atlanta, you know, if you're based in Miami and you have a $300,000 budget, it just doesn't work Mm -hmm. in a staff of 10 that is being underpaid. So if we're really looking at this holistically and we are trying to be um, uh, fair or equitable in the way that resources within your organization are is being distributed, then we want to make sure that we look at those factors as well. And particularly when we're talking about the education space, and this is thirdly, you know, there is a um, there's a different level of expense or extension of 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 the self that needs to be we need to be cognizant of when it comes to this work. Because as an education nonprofit, you can have a ripple effect on the community that you are serving. And when I say ripple effect, I don't mean you need to go work with every school in the school district. Focus your efforts, focus your financials, focus your resources and staff capacity on the one or two schools that you need to be working with. Or within the school, on the one or two grade levels that you can make the most impact with. Collect the data gather all of that information for one, two, three, five years, whatever it takes, as long as you're maximizing your resources and truly making an impact in the lives of those students that you're serving. We don't want to, you know, dilute the effect of our mission when it comes to how we are expending our resources. You want to make sure you're keeping, you're staying focused on your mission, but you're also, again, focusing on that quality of your work versus the quantity. Do you do you think people pursue the quantity because they feel like a certain type of pressure that if they don't, they're missing out on opportunities to secure funds? Is, is that is that part of what's going on? And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I I, yeah. I agree with what you're saying. I think you should master the scope of your reach first. Yeah. Um, but I yeah. you know I want to be fair to folks who are in that position and and really wrestle with like, man, is it that there's so much pressure to secure these dollars? And if you don't secure the dollars, then you're worried about like, am I going to be able to run my program next year? That's right. That's right. I mean, that's, and that's a fair, you know, question. And it is a lived experience of so many small nonprofits out there, particularly those ran by people of color. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Because one of the areas, you know, that we focus on a lot in our work is this area of building equity around how nonprofits are funded. And when, you know, this goes into a whole other conversation around trust-based philanthropy, right, where donors and funders are really focused on providing BIPOC leaders with the resources they need to run their nonprofits without having to jump through all of these hoops. In mm. other words, trust us with the money that you're giving us so we can get the Come work. On. Come on. Speaking my language, Let's do that, right, right. But at the so same, time, so let me, let me, you, you, let me. I'm gonna lose this thought if I don't say this. I want to take a moment to give a quick plug to the Flourish Collective, because mm-hmm. that's an organization. We're not a nonprofit, but that's an organization mm-hmm. that funded our work last year uh, to the tune of five thousand dollars, and this year, uh, mm-hmm. 
approved another grant for $10,000. And there's not all these strings attached. They see the evidence of our work. You know, we're very visible. We're not hiding anything. That's the right. evidence That's is out right. there. So they see it and they're like, absolutely. We want to support what you're doing. And, and I mentioned this because you're saying something that I, I believe a lot of people and organizations really contend with. And I know for even me, right? Even, even with multicultural classroom, there's been times that I've, I've felt discouraged about applying for grants because I'm like, oh my goodness, like it's going to be more work just to like, you know, navigate through all the strings y'all have attached to this money that I might as well figure out another way to, to get this money. Yeah, let's figure out another way to do it. And that's the exact problem with philanthropy today, right? We could probably have a whole nother segment on this, Roberta, right? And exactly what you're saying, you know, with the funder that trusted your organization with those funds, that's what philanthropy needs to move to. Now, we're not saying, hey, nonprofits, we're not going to hold it. You're not going to hold you accountable for yeah, these yeah. dollars we're you're using. But to have the notion that, hey, I'm not going to apply for this to maximize my capacity because it's just too much work that we got to get rid of. That we just have got to get rid of. Like y'all already know that we're underpaid and understaffed, but yet you're going to have all, and I'm not talking about multicultural classroom necessarily. I'm just generalizing, yeah. but y'all yeah. going to have all these strings that are going to increase our workload to the point that we might have to try to hire another staff member. That's right. Just to manage that grant, especially when you're talking about those federal grants that take mm -hmm. a minimum of 80 hours to write and submit. I mean, right. I have consultant peers, my colleagues, who charge $12,000 for one federal grant application. Oh, if they submit oh, we, that grant, that's right. We about that's to, right. I'm about to start a whole new strand from a <laughs> multicultural classroom. You're, we're in the wrong business, right? Let's go, let's go into grant writing. Oh but goodness. it's so important for, and, and you know, part of the, you know what I think too, Roberta, was that a lot of funders and I'm not making excuses in any way. They need to be at the table listening to these types of conversations. That's why not, we're doing. That's not, why we're doing this. That's why we do it, right? That's why we're doing this. And it's not just for the nonprofit. And we, you know, to address one of your earlier points, and I hate to use the word fear, but there is a connotation of fear there where we're saying, wait a minute, if I don't collect all of this data and all of these numbers, if I'm only serving one school, is that showing enough? impact. And that's where, you know, it gets to be a really slippery slope. And to your point earlier, that that is why so many small nonprofits do, you know, unfortunately have to kind of dilute their mission in some ways, right? And expand their resources beyond what their capacity truly is. And then it just becomes this vicious cycle of underpaid staff, diluted mission, because I'm going to submit these numbers anyway, and you're probably still going to think I'm not doing enough. So where do we draw the line to help these nonprofits, particularly our education nonprofits, right? And I'm an advocate for all nonprofits, but my heart is really with education, arts, and culture. But where do we draw the line to help these organizations with getting the resources that they need? Because we know in particular, education nonprofits are in our schools. They are helping our students. They are working towards student achievement directly. It's not just a little program that's happening. They are in the trenches day in and day out, working with teachers, schools, and administrators, 
to really to really affect change within within the system. So I yeah, could go it on. sounds like in the nonprofit world, there are, there are it sounds like this crossover between what happens in the corporate world with the nonprofit world. And what I mean by that is that in corporate world, you there's this push to always scale, you know, like bigger is better. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe to some extent that's happening yeah. in the nonprofit sector also when it's like, nah, we don't have to be the biggest organization out there. We don't right. have to be all over the place. You gave a really good example about not having to be, I don't know what you, I think you mentioned Atlanta or something, you know, right. when you're in whatever, you're in Miami or, or you're in Tampa, like, right. hey, like lock it down where you're at, right? Because Miami's big enough. There's enough work to do there. Oh, Tampa's yeah. big enough. There's enough work to so lock down your area. And once you do that effectively, right, right, and in a sustainable manner, then perhaps you can consider expanding whatever that's, that means. And look, and it still might not be Atlanta, right? It might be that's Orlando. Right. That's right. That's right. And it might still be within Miami, right? We're working with elementary. Now we're expanding to middle school. And it's just, you know, I, I, it, I encourage folks to really think in concentric circles and those concentric circles, believe it or not, they don't even start with the programmatic work that the first circle starts within your own organization, right? So if you are looking at pay equity, for example, within your nonprofit, no matter the size, are you effectively tackling pay equity within your nonprofit? Right. Are you, are you, providing your employees and team members with pay that is fair for their line of work, for their potentially level of seniority, which many people have done away with, right? Level of seniority is in many nonprofits is no longer even considered, right? For pay equity and more about that later. But make sure you're starting internally with the culture of your organization right, with the equitable standards you've established for your organization. Because if you're doing it in the work and you're not doing it within your organization, then we're hitting a line of hypocrisy that will filter out of your walls eventually. When that team member decides to transition to another nonprofit or someone gets let go for whatever reason, that business is not going to stay inside of your nonprofit, right? And we, and, and this transitions into a whole nother public relations, marketing, PR, reputation, right? It's segment. I think we've come up with about seven segments since I've been on here, Roberto. So well, you're just going to have to come back. Seven, seven other segments. Um, and we're gonna so this a, we're going to make this a whole series. That's right. That's right. You know what? I've always wanted to have my own talk show. So I, I'll start here. <laughs> And so, you know, looking at looking at the 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 operational pieces and how you're functioning internally is so important. And then you start looking at your program impact, right? How you're having an impact within the community, looking at growth and scale. And you mentioned something, Roberto, a little bit earlier. You may need to reduce how much you've grown and scaled. You know, there's so many times I've worked with nonprofits where I say, we need to stop. We need to stop. And that is the hardest thing for a nonprofit to do. They have reporting coming up, programs in motion. And what I what I mean by we need to stop, not just let's sit down and twitter our thumbs and take three months to think, but we need to stop this notion of, you know, more is actually more because at some point you're gonna bust at the seams. 
because more is going to become less, right? You'll never have enough money to do everything you need to do. I've never in 15 years come across a nonprofit that has from our big boys, big brother, big sisters, Salvation Army, Goodwill, down to our grassroots nonprofits. So it's so important to have to have that um, focus of how you're growing and scaling, because sometimes growing means you're going deeper. It doesn't mean that you're actually mm. expanding and scaling out. Ooh, that's good. That's good. We don't have to use that. <laughs> Do you have an example of a program or initiative that significantly amplified its impact in the community? That's a really good question. So across our nonprofit partners, I mean, there's been several, you know, examples of that. But I really want to, I'm going to take that question for our education nonprofit listeners and combine it with an, part of an earlier question that you kind of asked, if that's okay, because I think it's so important to, to hit on this note. So everyone knows, you know, many schools do the chocolate fundraiser every year, right? They do the chocolate fundraiser. Kids are coming out, buy one for a dollar. They're buying the boxes right on the street, knocking all your. But they don't, they don't, they don't be selling dark chocolate. I I like dark chocolate. (laughs) Well, that's that's another equity issue for another day, right? (laughs) Come on now. Right. So they do the chocolate fundraiser, and so, you know, one of the schools. well, my son's old school was a Title I school, and um, he's still in the public school system now, but he no longer attends a Title I school. So within that school, we had a PTO, and that PTO consisted of three consistent members. I myself held two positions just on that PTO board. That's how small the PTO was. Wow. And we had two or three other parents who came in for different events, a couple staff members who helped every now and again. Tiny, tiny, tiny PTO. So we held the chocolate fundraiser. I spearheaded that. And, you know, with my fundraising gene, of course, the school surpassed its chocolate fundraising goals more than ever. (laughs) And so I think the school raised about $24,000 or so. It would have been 25 if you sold dark chocolate. It would have been 25 if we sold dark chocolate. I'll agree with you there. (laughs) And so, you know what, I think we actually had dark chocolate. But anyway, another episode. And so, um, you know, the notion with that, it's not just, it wasn't just about the chocolate sales, right? It was about introducing something at a price point that at least one person in each of those students' network could actually afford. Everybody knows somebody who could buy a chocolate bar for a dollar. And it created a, um, a fundraiser, you know, really through a lens of equity where students could all feel like they could participate. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that really drove things forward for us was how we connected, you know, to community churches and, you know, local community organizations to really make that happen. Um, sometimes, you know, education institutions, schools in particular, public schools in particular, K through 12, there are these barriers within the community because community folks who are, you know, engaged, you know, they're paying attention to what's happening at the local level, Politics wise, they know, right? We all know tax dollars are going to support our students, are going to support our schools. So there's always this fine line of wait, I'm already supporting the school because my taxes are going towards whatever's happening there. Mm-hmm. So it's always it was always important for us to make sure we keep community organizations engaged, you know, in the work outside of parents, outside of school administrators and teachers, outside of the students, and selling chocolate at the churches. 
You know, I think one church bought 10 boxes and that was just one church. Wow. Um, and so making that happen, you know, for the school in order for them to have the resources that they need, you know, the PTO was there at the service of the school. And so the principal administrators, teachers were able to come together and figure out the best needs for those students and make that happen. And I use that example because it is a an easy reach example. You know, it's low hanging fruit. It's not something where, um, you know, you really have to go too far outside of what a school PTO or maybe a couple parents who might be able to get together, even if you're not operating a PTO, might be able to do. It's really low hanging fruit. It's a free fundraiser. You know, um, and so, I mean, there's, you know, a couple of different strings attached, but it's a low hanging fruit example that any education institution can do raise $23,000. You know, you got to give them a cut, of course, a pretty big cut too at that. But at the end of the day, it was 11000 or 14000 more dollars than we had before. So that's great. That's yeah. great. I might get my kids to go sell some chocolate bars after this interview is <laughs> over. That's right. Get them, put them to work. So let's uh, let, let's talk about collaboration and the importance of collaboration within the sector for achieving maximum impact. And what are some of the best practices for fostering effective partnerships? Yeah, I love that. I love that question because it to me it you know it goes back and hinders on making sure that the school has a really strong parent support organization, PTA, PTO. You know, I'm I'm a fan of PTO because there's just more flexibility. Um, so, but the problem with that is many schools don't have the capacity to even run a PTO, mm. right? Our Title I schools, you know, parents are just too busy. They're too busy to come to extra meetings and come up with extra ideas and all kinds of fundraisers and big extra cookies for whatever, right? And so we're, we find ourselves, and I'm going to focus on Title I schools here, because I've, I've had the experience of both. You know, my son's current school is not Title I, but there's 200 members of the PTO Wow! Right at his school. That's right. Only about 20 are pretty active, what we call the PTO board. Of course, you know, I'm on it. I'm the classroom mom. But there's ways, you know, I really get in there, Roberto, because, you know. No, you we, got to. We, gotta, we, get, we have to. We have to, to be there for students, right? Because yeah. if we're not, then who will? Yeah, yeah. Right? And then, we, you know, we, we can't. We can't yeah. just sit on the sidelines and expect change to happen if we're not if we're not That's active right. on the front lines. That's right. That's exactly right. And so one of the things I'm going to bring this back up because it's been so critical is having community support. Mm. And by community support, I don't mean getting community organizations just to donate money because that is a hard pull. It is a hard sell. And quite frankly, sometimes it's not money that the school is actually looking for. It may be what they need. But they may need volunteers. You know, they may need just extra support for a particular event. They may need a venue to host their uh, teacher night out, right? They may need some free coupons or passes for a bowling alley, which we had at our Title I school, you know, to hand out to students or prize packages for certain things. So there are many in-kind donation factors, you know, that we can partner with community organizations with to provide for students and teachers and administrators. And that piece is so important because one, yes, it takes additional work, but having even one or two parents at the table who have the time, capacity, resources, or networks to actually reach out and gather, you know, those resources for the school is critical. You know, I've been part of schools where, hey, I've written a grant, you know, not a huge grant, 
for a nonprofit, a $2,500 grant, you know, it's something, but it's not much. Every dollar, every dollar counts. Every dollar counts. But for a Title I school, I mean, that's huge. You know, it's huge. And so I think, you know, making sure if your school, and I, and I, I hate to shove this into the laps of admin and principals, but to a certain extent, we have to. And we know they're at capacity. We know, you know, I, I know the story. They're at capacity. Teachers at capacity. But at some point, there has to be some type of prioritization that comes with having an organized parent group that can actually help support the school. Yes, the first year is going to be tough. The first year is going to be tough to build that momentum, get that group together. But once you have it established, now you're maintenancing, you're growing, right? You're sustaining. You're no longer just reinventing the wheel every single year. And I think that's an area that Title I schools need support with. And one of the key collaborations, I think, you know, I'm always thinking about, hey, what's going to come next? How can we make this happen? Because it's not going to happen quickly. It's going to take time. Title I schools, they need more help from the district and state level in order to make that happen. You know, I, I envision a model where PTOs are funded at the district level and there is a PTO organization that oversees schools across the district and works with local PTO chapters. I think there needs to be some sort of organized funding structure, you know, that goes into funding these organizations to better support the schools. Because even the PTOs are strapped sometimes, right? My uh, son's current school, we did a fun run fundraiser and raised $35,000 in just a couple of weeks in this current school. $35,000. And that's just one fundraiser happened back in September. But imagine if more of our schools had those types of resources. Imagine if PTOs shifted into a model where, hey, if your school can afford the resources to have a PTO, go for it. If you are a Title I school and 95% of your parents are working one or two jobs, they just don't have the capacity, the district is going to provide you with a group that can help you with the fundraising resources you need, the community connections you need to make. But the model is going to have to shift. It, it, if it stays like this, I'm sorry, some of our schools are going to remain really stagnant. And we can't afford to have that happen because it affects our students and their education. It's interesting to hear you say this. Interesting to hear you use the term imagine. Earlier, I was connecting with author J.E. Thomas, Jan Thomas, author of Control Freaks. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned to her before when I had her on my platform that I'm interested in having her and Jamila Dugan, mm -hmm. author of Street Data, co-author of Street Data, okay. on my platform so that we can dream a bit. Yeah. Jamila has an excerpt in her book uh, where she, I don't know, I don't remember if it's written as a poem or... Mm -hmm. I just read it in poetic voice. That's probably what happens. You know, <laughs> probably I, just read it in poetic voice. I, I just, you know, I read everything in poetic voice. So I'm, <laughs> I'm a poet. But the point is that excerpt talked about reimagining schools mm. and having you talk about it now 
from the philanthropist lens, from the funding lens, from the PTO lens, you know, it, it adds just this this other layer of a conversation <laughs> I want to have where we have this panel and 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 where J.E. Thomas comes in is her book, Control Freaks. It basically she created this ideal school in her book mm. uh, that met the needs of all these different characters. And then, you know, Jamila with what she's doing with street data and all the work that she's doing to support school leaders and educators across the country. You know, she has a vision for how the schools should look. And and then you with your experience in the education nonprofit world and in and funding and philanthropy and whatnot, and and definitely in your experience being involved with PTO, you have this other lens to it. And I feel like we have all these brilliant people that need to come together and and dream radically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When we're talking about reform, like the stuff that they're talking about reform, that ain't cutting it. We we seen <laughs> we've seen for years that Evidently. the reform that's been done through our U.S. Uh, education systems not cutting it. And so we need to have some other people at the table to have these conversations where we are dreaming radically. Yes. And and then yeah. thinking about and, and laying out some achievable action steps to start working towards that, however yeah. gradual that may be. I love it. I love that, Roberto. And I, I two two and a half years ago, I actually read Jamila's book, Street Data, and it is an incredible read. It is an incredible read. But it's one of those you kind of got to keep going back to. I mean, there's so much information, so much information um, that can't be applied at the same time. But everything is, yeah, definitely. Every administrator, school leader should be reading that book. Well, we might have to get the three of y'all together on this panel. So well, we let me note that down for episode 10. Because I hey. think that's the 10th episode idea there. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. So- What's uh, shifting gears a little bit? Because we've we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. But what's what's the message of encouragement that you want to offer our audience, or some advice that you want to offer our audience, individuals or organizations who who want to make an impact uh, in the education nonprofit sector? Yeah, you know, one of the things I've always shared is we do this work from the heart. If we just cared about becoming wealthy or being rich, this is not the same. We wouldn't be a nonprofit and we certainly wouldn't be in education, right? Working within the public school systems. Keep going. My advice is to keep going because despite all of the hardships that education nonprofits, nonprofits in general, K through 12 public schools are facing, continue to face, will continue to face and have faced the true measure of that success is going to be when that student comes back and remembers the impact you had on their life. Or that student comes back to your nonprofit and remembers that they went through a mentorship program that used to come to their school that your, your nonprofit provided, or that they went to that literacy camp that changed their life. That is the true measure of success, you know, in, in its purest form and in essence. So keep going because you are impacting someone's life every single day, whether or not, if you know it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Now, 
If you had the opportunity to have lunch with anybody dead or alive, who would it be and why? I'd have lunch with you, Roberto. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. So I have always wanted to have lunch, and this might be very cliche, with Oprah. If I could have lunch with Oprah, and I choose Oprah because she is a non-traditional woman. She's a non-traditional woman. You know, she's gone through a lot of trauma in her mm. life as a young woman, overcame insurmountable odds to be where she is. You know, she doesn't define your cliche persona of what a woman needs to be or should be, you know, is unmarried, never felt the pressure to get married. So it's to me, it's those things that I would want to ask her about a little bit more. I'd want to dig into her personal business a little bit more because the O Magazine is not cutting it for me right now. <laughs> well, Oprah, if you're listening, all right. <laughs> <laughs> lunch with Whitney. It's on you though, Oprah. On you, Oprah. On you. <laughs> you got to work around my schedule, Oprah. <laughs> well, where can folks follow you if they're interested in learning more about your work, connecting with you, asking you questions about educational nonprofits, philanthropy, PTO, where can they follow you? Absolutely. So I am a LinkedIn guru. You can follow me on LinkedIn or you can visit my website and fill out our questionnaire form. My email's on there as well. Whitney at theabsoluteimpact.com is my email. Our website is theabsoluteimpact.com. So feel free to reach out to me through any of those channels. Whitney, it's been a pleasure. Oh, there's so much that we touched upon here and so much more that we have to discuss. So right. as right. you mentioned, we got nine more episodes that we got to map out. That's right. 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Correct. Including the panel with J.E. Thomas and Jamila Dugan. I love it. I love I look, it. I look forward to furthering our conversations and learning more from you. I do as well, Roberto. This was great. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for being here. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.